It's been a while since I've spoken in an audio format and talked about anything about art or anything. And I have this book that I have to return to the library from uh, that I received out of uh, my academic library um, interlibrary loan system. It came all the way from, well, it came all the way from the Marymount University Library, Loyola Marymount, but the book was actually published in the Louisiana Museum of Modern Art, which is in Denmark. And that was the main reason I wanted to get it, was because Asher Jorn, the uh, artist that they were that they're speaking about here, is one of my favorites. Uh, one of my favorite Danish artists. And so anyway, I thought, well, since I haven't spoken all pretty much all year, I'll talk about this book a little bit. I thought about reading it. It's a very small book. It mainly has lots of his work in it, imagery. And so it's more a museum book talking about the work inside there gallery space in there. Um, so I thought I would just flip through it and talk about it a little bit. Uh, <clears throat> when I was at this museum, I was just astounded by the way they had designed it. And I think it was in the preface that I read, it sort of described my experience. Let me see if I can find it here. Um, anyway, the book's called Asher Jorn by Hella Bronze, and it's published by the Louisiana Library out of the Louisiana Museum of Modern Art. And Asher Jorn is a pretty eclectic and, um, I don't know, interesting is not the right word, um, there was a word I was reading in here about how they described his art as sort of, well, maybe it's in the pub, in the in the preface. Let me see. It says, when you move along the glass corridor that winds through the Louisiana Museum, past the Giacometti Library, uh, Gallery, and turn the next couple of corners, you come to the space that was inaugurated in 2007 as a permanent Asher Jorn Gallery. Just as you can always find a breathtaking space among the sculptures of the park or spend a while in the meditative Giacometti room, Jorn's paintings are now also fixtures at the Louisiana Museum, but this is hardly a room to which you would go to find calm. If, on the other hand, you are looking for visual kicks and painterly provocation, there it is, painterly provocation. <laughs> Other, uh, you always have the option of a destabilizing experience with works like Dead Drunk Danes or Mobile Standstill. But there is no guarantee that precisely these paintings will be on display. I don't think I saw most of them when I was there. The gallery shows changing presentations of the museum's Jorn works. And quite frankly, a static hanging or any kind of permanence would be contrary to the nation, sorry, contrary to the nature of Jorn's oeuvre. The Jorn collection consists of a handful of fine early paintings, 
from the 40s and the start of the 1950s, a large swath of important pictures from the mid-50s up to 1972, the year before Jorn died. And besides these, a series of graphic works from the years 1970 to 1973. Asher Jorn, born in 1914, passed away in 1973, was inconceivably prolific and had an almost frightening ability to handle a lot of projects at once. Besides an extremely large number of paintings, more than 2,200, he produced a wealth of collages, sculptures, tapestries, prints, and ceramics. Alongside his visual art production, he wrote a huge number of articles and theoretical books. His bibliography comprises over 700 titles about anything that interested him as an artist and as a political, inquiring, well-read human being. <laughs> he dealt theoretically with many of the major currents of the time, such as linguistics, structuralism, dialectical materialism, and communism. Moreover, from 1953 on, he was constantly engaged in collecting works and arranging exhibitions for the museum he helped to found in, the, in his native city, Silkborg, where he built up an impressive, widely ram, uh, ramified collection of works both by himself and by the artists with whom he felt affinities. His whole large book collections, as well as notebooks, unpublished texts, an archive of 15,000 photographs of Nordic folk art, a, a situationist library, and drafts for unrealized projects are gathered there, too. I have a picture of him here on the opposite page of him at, uh, in year 1932, which would make him what? still almost 20-something. He was born in 1914, was it? Yeah. So, interesting. Um, however, apart from Jorn's donation to the museum in Silkborg, the late paintings from the end of the 50s on, the ones that brought him international recognition as a central figure in the art of the 20th century, are first and foremost to be found in private collections and in museums abroad. This is where the Louisiana's Jorn collection fulfills an important function, for, for with the aid of a quite unique private donation from Dresslings, the museum has built up an unusually large representation of paintings from the last 15 years of Jorn's output. It is thus Jorn, as a painter in the international format, who is presented here in the context of the modern and contemporary art offered by the rest of the Louisiana's collection. When I was there for my residency, I actually traveled over to Silkborg to go to the Jorn Museum. Um, I went to the Louisiana Art Museum in um, the year before when I was there, the first time I was in Denmark. And I went there, um, took the train out of Copenhagen, Kubenhall, as they say in Danish, Kubenhall. Um, yeah, so anyway, he has his own museum in Silkborg. Um, it says here, with his focus on Jorn's late painting, 
With this focus on Jorn's late painting, there are, of course, parts of his multifaceted oeuvre that, were, that are not represented. For example, his overpaintings of old pictures, his collages and other experiments in painting and in book form. But even without those, without these, there are striking variety in museum's paintings. The Jorn room is vibrant with stylistic diversity, formal clashes, and painterly sorties in various directions. It goes on to describe. Oh, I might as well read it. Let's see. There are light, airy, and ornamental pictures, dark, eerie, doom-laden canvases, and shrilly overwrought color contrasts. Creatures amusing and horrific emerge from the blotches of paint. There are long, gently curving arabesques and short staccato-like strokes. There is paint squeezed directly from the tube, like lively worms. There are thin jets of paint that rain down over the surfaces, and there are thick, dense color massives that lie heavy on the canvases. There are pictures full of faltering, uncertain strokes, and pictures with swift, precise gestures applied with supreme assurance. And then there are pictures so chaotic that seem to fall apart as paintings. The controlled painting method of the early pictures has an extra effect of discipline compared with the later explosive pictures. It is amazing that they have all been painted by the same artist. You have to wonder whether they were all painted out of the same artistic convictions, or whether they were more sincerely meant than others, a question to which I will return. The variety of paintings reflects both a general artistic development and Jorn's indefatigable urge to keep challenging painting and painterly devices. That's the whole point of painting, isn't it? (laughs) Sorry, that's my little addendum. To try out different methods only to distort them, reflect them or renew them later in an open dialectic with other artists. As one could argue he did with expressionism. His heterogeneous artistic strategies have given rise to diverging interpretations of his art. Depending on whether you stress his early or late production, his Cobra period, or his association with the international situationists, his theoretical writings, or his painterly experiments, his commitment to the art of the time, his time, or his interest in that of the past, the the continuity among his activities or their internal contradictions. However, this book attempts to offer insight into Jorn's complex visual world, on the basis of several approaches to his painting. The point of departure is Louisiana's collection, but some of the work categories that are not represented there are also considered since they can shed light on other important dimensions of the works that are that are represented. Some of Jorn's books and articles, too, are discussed and quoted in the, in the hope that the verbally formulated part of his thinking may contribute to a nuanced insight into the visual part. You know, I find this happens all the time with artists that have passed, that the public or specifically galleries and museums want, you know, to kind of make a statement or somehow, I don't want to call it a box, but you know, somehow categorize artists in 
in their work over, over their lifetime. And I'm even finding now, after 30 years of painting, I couldn't believe it the other day I figured it out. I was like, gosh, you've been painting for 30 years. Um, that, you know, um, uh, when you paint over that long period, your your styles change, your, your, your meanings change, your... Your experimentation changes. Your your um, you, you know you just you just try different things. You want to say different things. You want to explore different avenues. And for me, I find that the same. I mean, I'm kind of stuck in this studio right now, thinking I prefer to be sculpting right now. I really would, and there's no place to do it. So I. I find myself sort of doing drawings that represent sort of sculptural type works or arranging items in sculptural manners that I'm not sure what will happen with. I'm, I'm, maybe I should start photographing um, the structures I tend to make in my studio and then do nothing with, you know. I should be making them and drawing them and documenting them I suppose um as a thinking process because that's what I've been doing this last year um is doing small works drawings and actually building things moving things around seems like that is my been has been my last year is just moving items into new positions <laughs> and I'm like going, are you just like creating things? Is that what you're doing? You're just building like these items over here are now considered, you know, I mean, I'm thinking of a spot in my studio that, you know, I should probably name it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't have any names for these things, but I've been physically moving things and creating kind of sculptural nothings I don't know what it is so um and I look at canvas and I, I feel like that's so flat and what can I say with that one and what is that one saying and you know there's a big uh I remember back in 2000 or even before that when I was at art school that um that I had to choose. I think it was when I was taking photography, actually, and they told me you need to choose a medium and stick with it for your body of work, you know? You need to choose, almost like being in college and you need to choose a a, a major, you know? And, and we're not like that. We're not one-dimensional people. So, anyway, I'm just going to go on about that. But anyway, this book, uh, Jorn has was inspiring to me, has been, his Cobra period, um, which is when he collaborated with artists. Let me go through here, see if there's a picture of that, and I want to speak about that a little bit. Oh, that's when I sort of, that is when I learned of him, my friend in Netherlands, um, Sylvia. Her name is Sylvia? I don't talk to her all that much anymore. Um, it was the abstract expression and expressionism cobra in context. I was on that page. Um, 
So it says, at the same time as Jorn and the circle around Cobra, C-O, capital C-O, capital B-R-A, were developed, those are the um, initials of the different artists, were developing their spontane spontaneously abstract painting. A similar process was taking place in American art. Um, let me go back. Let me see here one second. Mm -mm. Oh, that's not it. Well, anyway, let me just go on from there. This, uh, this congruity was probably the result of similar preconditions. In years around the war, the artists on both sides of the Atlantic were painfully aware of the dark side of humanity, its, irrational, its irrationality and vulnerability, and they gave vent to this awareness in new expressive visual in idiom. In the United States, too, in the United States, too, like also, artists were building further on European modernism especially the automatism of surrealism and cubism's abstraction and use of mask motifs. Just as Jorn was interested in the art of Nordic prehistory, abstract expressionists like Jackson Pollock, Barnett Newman, Robert Motherwell, Adolf Gottlieb, and Mark Rothko found inspiration in so-called primitive art with its mythological figures. In their case, it was often the Native American past they revisited in quest for painterly, and authenticity, painterly authenticity and universalism. In 1943, Rothko and Gottlieb, with the aid of Newman, described the essence of their visual art in a letter to the New York Times that was to become one of the most important documents of exp abstract expressionism. And here's an, a cut from that. No possible set of notes can explain our paintings. Their explanation must come out of a consummated experience between picture and onlooker. To us, art is an adventure into an unknown world of imagination, which is fancy-free and violently opposed to common sense. There is no such thing as a good painting about nothing. We assert that the subject is crucial and only that the subject matter is valid, which is tragic and timeless. That is why we profess spiritual kinship with primitive and archaic art. These artists view of art as a journey into the unknown and irrational, as well as their insistence that the content of the paintings must be timeless and primitive was fully consonant with the thoughts Jorn was having about art at the same time. So was their confidence that the pictures explain themselves better than words. Nevertheless, they all found it necessary to write about this. Jorn was embarrassingly conscious of the paradox in this situation. For, as he writes in the book Alpha Omega, here's his writing, Nothing is as dangerous for an artist as writing about art. The danger for the writing artist lies in his tendency to build on his own theories. His faith in having found something that can, have, that can give him or others certain artistically creative guidelines. Indeed, if he does not himself believe in them, he still 
instills in others a belief in having found the key, which they then apply to everything that he does. In this connection, I would like to emphasize that what I write has a purely empirical basis. So just as an aside, I remember always, and I still do, I balk at talking about what my art really means. And yet, as I get, a, get to a space in my career, if you will, it's not really a career, but I mean, in my journey of painting, I'm starting to feel a need to either in audio format or in writing format, talk about the work a little bit so that when I'm gone, there is some context for it. But I'm with, I'm with these people, these past artists that believe that the painting should speak for itself and that the viewer should have their own experience. And I have a collector who's now since passed, and he has a lot of my work. And there was always a kind of a push from him, a nudge, I guess, not really a push, a nudge from him to always talk, for, try to get me to talk more about the work he was purchasing. And um, I would tell him a few things, but nothing big. And and he, I just think he... And so he would write back to me saying what he saw in the work and what he felt about it, trying to get my acknowledgement or my confirmation. And we'd have a little bit of discussion like that. But outside of that, I think people need to just see what they see in it. In fact, when I've been in shows and been around my work and heard people speaking to each other about the work, it's always nice to sort of listen in because I learn a lot from the viewer about what they see <laughs> in the work. So anyway, that's just an aside. But I have found the tendency of wanting to talk about more about my the beginning of the work or the layers in the work and what's underneath the work and where it came from and where the process was going and more about process more than anything about the finished product. So um, I don't know what will happen. I haven't done it yet and it may never happen may have to let the docents, whoever find the work, or maybe it's the garbage collectors that'll have a discussion when my kids throw it in the garbage pail or peep. Here's another part of this book. So both Jorn and American Expressionists were careful not to write too directly about their works, instead stressing their general attitude to painting as a medium with a different logic from language a medium where it is precisely empirical knowledge and the unarticulated emotions and thoughts that come to expression. For American Expressionists, the path to direct expression of the painter's emotional life was the spontaneous gesture. The tracks of the brush were seen as a direct imprint of the painter's hand and spirit, and painting was thus associated with great personal and individual freedom. That's kind of how I look at it. The Cobra Group's version of the expressive, on the other hand, was based on a shared socialist ideology and focused on the collective. We didn't think that you should paint as you yourself were with an individual self-expressionism, but that there was so much of the collective in it that you could simply do something together and that one artist could work in another's work. 
In other words, we were anti-individualists, the Cobra painter Constant asserts. While the fundamental socialist idea was incorporated in Cobra and was unequivocally associated with the movement, the dynamism, vitality, and individual expression of freedom in American expressionism was viewed in political quarters as an image of American liberalism. No matter what the political convictions of the artists were, Pollock, for example, had socialist sympathies, this new strong painting could be made to symbolize a new self-aware United States. Um, and and I, I have to say, I've experienced both. I've experienced collaborations with other artists that I enjoy, and I have tremendous fond memories um, in doing that, in doing so, and frustrations, of course. Um, <clears throat> uh, when you're passing works back and forth between artists and you're not speaking about them, that was one of my first projects um, out out of art school. Um, we did a th- uh, a colleague and I did a three year project like that, and it was tremendously rewarding. And on the same hand, tremendously frustrating because I, I didn't know sometimes on another level where the work was going because I wouldn't know what would happen when I passed it on to her and then she passed it back to me. So <clears throat> it was an interesting process. But I believe in that. I believe in that process of creativity. I think everybody should have to, not have to, but... Yeah, have to. As an artist, I think you should collaborate. I think you should try it. I think you should stretch yourself. Um, Let's see here. Another difference between American Expressionism and the Nordic European variety was the degree of, of abstraction. While Americans moved towards a more and more abstract, non figurative visual idiom, like Pollock's actionistic drip paintings and Rothko's simple, strong color surfaces, the Cobra painters persisted with figures even after the dissolution of Cobra. So did the Chilean Roberto Mata and the Cuban Wilfredo Lam, who were closely linked with the Cobra group and whom Jorn rated very highly as artists. For Jorn, figuration was about humanity, and he regarded it as the most important task of art to be the direct expression of the human let me go through there, sorry. The direct expression of the human communicated through the artist's own humanity. So even in Jorn's most abstract paintings, there were all there are almost always figures small creatures in corners, hints of faces, or in the midst of the hodgepodge of color, just a pair of eyes that the viewer can identify with or relate to. This aspect of the Cobra tradition also typifies his later pictures. And I think that's why my friend in the Netherlands suggested I look at Jorn, because that's what happens in my abstract work. Even if I'm not trying at all, a figure generally or parts of figures appear. Um, and there's no real changing that for me. I've tried and tried not to do it, you know. And <clears throat> and then if I really allow the process to go as it's intended, 
when I work spontaneously. Um, most times, more times than not, a figure or some parts of figurative works come through. I think that's enough for today. That's a long jaunt for my last year of talking about art. I haven't done it at all this year. and I really haven't wanted to put much content up in my voice anymore. I'm starting to get feeling like I don't want my images out in the world anymore. I don't want my voice. You know, the the work is going to be done here or wherever I'm creating it. In nature, phot- photographs or whatever I'm doing, it's all there. It doesn't have to be shown on instant, you know, social media all the time. I just find that so nauseating anymore. I'm like, I'm not trying anymore to what's the word sell the work it's like you know what I don't I've done it for how many years 20 years no yeah 22 years 20 years because I haven't been doing it the last couple really um and it's not that goes against my at this point in my life it's going against my philosophy I guess for how I want to live so yeah there you have it hasta luego everybody nice to talk again about art here's an addendum because I talked so much about Cobra I think I should at least describe Cobra in a more succinct way it's not something that everybody knows about Um, because it's such a a short period of time for these painters to be together. I think it was only three years. And um, there were many painters in in these groups, and it wasn't just like three painters or something, you know, switching paintings around. I think I made that kind of um, sound like it was. And so I want to go back to that really quickly here. So basically, Jorn was um, involved in a lot of groups. I mean, he he was he lived and worked in Denmark and France and Italy and traveled incessantly. So he um, he kind of was like a, a nomad, if you will. <laughs> I don't know. He functioned as a nodal point in a long succession of artistic groupings. Here's what they say. From 1940, Jorn was part of the spontaneously abstract group around the periodical Heilstein, Heilstein and the Haust exhibition alongside others. And they name these artists, Ezel uh, Jacobson, Henry Hirup, none that you'll probably recognize, Ilger Biel, and Carl Henning Peterson. Peterson is the one I I know more about than any of them. Carl Henning, I've seen his work. In 1948, the Danish group group joined forces with the Belgian group, Surrealism Revolutionnaire, with Christian Dautermont, Joseph Noiret, and later Pierre Alkinczynski, Alkinczynski, and the Dutch Reflex group with members like Constant, Carol Appel, and Cornel and formed the COBRA, which means Copenhagen, Brussels, and Amsterdam. That's what that stands for, not not actually artists' names. So 
it was this cobra group that joined these different small countries together of painters, these regions, these groups. And Jorn was also in the Danish group called Spirlen with um, others, including Mogens Ball and Wildem, Willem Freddy. And in 53, with an Italian artist, Enrico Bage, he formed the movement International Por, Baja, Por Un Bajas Imaginiste. <laughs> oh, so he was in Italy in organizing a ceramics laboratory. And in context, he held conferences and attended, you know, you know, all these things he was doing, right? So he was involved in a lot of different groups with different artists. And... Um, he said that it says here, like a whole generation of post-war artists, Jorn insisted in defiance of the grim realities on the dream of the collectivity of socialism and of art, helping to unite war-ravaged Europe by developing a universal visual language. In 45, for example, he co-authored an article. I'm not going to say it in, in uh, Danish. It's called The New Realism. In in which the spontaneously abstract artist proclaimed, we join international art in the struggle to solve the new shared artistic and human problems to which our time has given rise on the basis of its new scientific, psychological, and social results. So, you know, this Cobra group was, a, you know, huge in, in essence of like a renewal in a way after this war, um, goes on here to say that it was great it was a great energy was the great energy was that George Jorn invested in building up artistic collectives collectivities oh, um, it was just as important for him that these were sanctuaries where views could clash and where oppositions and paradoxes were not only accepted but used to fuel the collective bonfire so it was a movement, in essence, you know. It's not just, you know, a group of artists getting together and switching art. I, I really felt like after I said that, I was like, that's not exactly what it's about. But anyway, so now I'm coming back to try to let you know that the Cobra group, they say here, was, for example, was powered by the dynamism of confrontation and was characterized more by diversity than unity which also meant that the bonfire very quickly burned down. When Cobra artists created collective works across the boundaries of arts and nations, they did so against a background of great disagreements. The disputes were about the relations between art and politics, the degree of self-determination in the different countries' groups, the intervention of the literary and visual artists in other in each other's fields, as well as purely private conflicts. For example, Jorn fell in love with Constance's wife, Maddie, later marrying her and having two children with her. But this did not put a stop to Jorn's lifelong artistic exchanges with Constance. In 1951, two of the pace-setting artists in Cobra, Jorn and Christian Dottermont, lay seriously ill in the same ward of the tuberculosis sanatorium in Silkborg and quarreled furiously at the same time, creating word pictures <laughs> collectively as the Cobra group disintegrated around them. If the collectivity had functioned perfectly, the art would have died for perfection. That's death, as Jorn wrote to Dautremont. 
In Jorn's contrarian logic, Cobra was a success precisely because the group wasn't afraid to put its foot in its mouth or break its neck trying. For in the process, they created something new and pushed the individual artist beyond his own limits. I love it. The life of Cobra as a movement as a movement was very short, only three years. Oh, I was right, 48 to 51. And Jorn spent most of this time traveling, organizing, discussing, writing, and on the whole, living out the Cobra idea. And that is why the Cobra period, with which Jorn has slightly misleading has slightly misleadingly been primarily identified, was in fact a low ebb in his general flood of painterly production. And there are, in, no, in fact, no pictures from the period in the Louisiana Journe collection. No, you have to go to Silkborg to see those. <laughs> anyway, Cobra was, in other words, a kind of eye of the hurricane. And on the other hand, its effects stormed through the artistic life of Europe, as well as through Journe's subsequent output. So anyway, that's Cobra, right? So, um, yeah, if you hear about that. I didn't hear about it until I was actually in Amsterdam. Um, That's when my friend told me about Jorn. And, and, oh, you have to see Jorn's work and this and that and the Cobra period and this and that. They were talking about, you know, her and her son. So, you know, it was an education for me. To even lo- learn about that and um yeah it's been really eye-opening so that's the end of my story for today now i'm finished thank you for listening <laughs> goodbye